This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's down to the wire. Nine days left before the election and the question is, is there anything that will move the state of public opinion, which seems to have held more or less since the beginning? It shows the PCs in majority territory with the liberals in second place in terms of popular support. Policy announcements are coming fast and furious, and so is the dirt. So will either of those things make an impact? There's a column in the Toronto Sun, which Steve Key referred to in his news, accusing the sitting NPP, or sitting until dissolution in St. Paul's, of anti-Semitism, and also saying it's a wider problem in the party. And remember, the federal NDP candidate in this riding in the last election was fired less than a week before that vote because of anti-Semitic remarks. The big difference there is that that federal candidate had no chance while Jill Andrew is, as we said, the sitting MPP, which I gather is a big factor in all the parties if a candidate gets into trouble as we have seen with about four liberals and at least one progressive conservative. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Howard Hampton, former Leader of the Ontario NDP. Hello, and thanks to all of you. Good afternoon. Hi, everybody. Let us begin with... Howard, so what what are your thoughts on this latest accusation? Uh, the candidate who leveled these accusations against Jill Andrew is not named, and uh, they date back to 2020, and basically what he says is that the party was trying to shove it under the rug and saying, okay, we'll deal with it after the election. Well, this is, uh, this is not new news. Um, the issue of Palestine is a very controversial one. And let me give you an example. Former President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, wrote a book about how Palestinians uh, were not second, perhaps not even third-rate citizens in Israel. And he was labeled anti-Semitic uh, for that book. Um, we've had uh, people in all parties who take a position in terms of Palestine uh, then being labeled as anti-Semitic. Well, I, just a I, minute, I, Howard. This We're yeah. talking about anti-Semitism here, and there is an accepted definition. I understand uh, that. Yeah. Pardon? I, under, I understand that, but we just saw the same thing, for example, in the Green Party, where you had uh, some uh, uh, Green Party MPs take a position on uh, Palestine, uh, and then other people in the Green Party said, well, that's anti-Semitic. Well, so, it's, it's not just other people in the Green Party. It's it's an internationally accepted I, I under, definition. I and I, I mean, it didn't, there wasn't details about that. But um, yeah. anti-Israel is, especially in the left, it's a proxy for anti-Semitism where, uh, you know, um, it, Israel is being held to a totally different standard than other countries. I don't see a lot of criticism of, uh, you know, some of the worst human rights offenders in that neighborhood. But so are you saying that this is just an unfair accusation? No, I'm, I'm saying you have to treat these accusations uh, 
very carefully and very thoughtfully, especially in the last 10 days of an election. Well, yeah, right. in the last 10 days of the uh, uh, federal election, uh, mm-hmm. the NDP candidate was fired because of uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And, and I, I actually looked at that, and I understand why that was done. But what you've got here is a, a fairly nebulous uh, accusation. Um, and I don't think anybody can point to anything that Jill Arthur has said that would be... Jill Andrew. Yes. Jill Andrew. So I, I don't. I don't think anybody can point to anything, but I will say this: that in debates where people have have been critical of the state of Israel or the treatment of Palestinians, oftentimes those people are being labeled anti-Semitic. Well, and I oftentimes I that they are. <laughs> And oftentimes they are. There are lots of things that you can criticize Israel for, but uh, some of it is way over the top. Uh, delegitimizing the state is what it comes down to and delegitimizing the, uh, uh, the Jewish state. But anyway, let's move on, Charles. Uh, the liberals sent out uh, a uh, they sent out a release on this. Uh, what do you make of this? Uh, listen, it, it's. Um I find the issue of anti-Semitism and the definition thereof, I know the liberals adopted it, and the NDP are still trying to find what it may mean or not mean as a result of some of the other geopolitics in the area. But it is disturbing trends, not in all parties, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I even consider what happened with Paul Miller for Islamophobia, and he was pushed out um, in respect to some of those comments or affiliation or associations with certain groups on Facebook. Um, and then, of course, there's white supremacist issues um, in, in parties as well, which creates a lot of, of concern. Um, these are disturbing trends. And, uh, you know, I, I deal with all groups. We all want to get along. We all, they all, people come to Canada for the purposes of trying to avoid some of uh, the fights back in the home country, so to speak. But this is a much broader issue, much bigger issue that has been uh, addressing world events for a long time. And um, I'm concerned that this is now coming to light yet again, to the point that this has been already discussed in the past, and that the NDP still haven't been able to resolve their issues internally because they're obviously opposing views. Uh, Lisa Wright, I mean, uh, we've seen an explosion in anti-Semitism just in the last couple of years. Uh, we see this ongoing thing. I mean, the to me, the difference, there's anti-Semitism on the right, but it's usually a lot more overt. And uh, it's, uh, you know, in the, on the left, there are more people who are saying that uh, really it's, it's not that, it's something else. Well, I'm going to, so for me, uh, it's, what's going to be important is how the leaders deal with it. Uh, you know, I take Howard's point about people having different points of view, and Libby, you're bang on. There's no question that the facts show that anti-Semitism is on the rise in Canada, and we need to do all that we can do to illuminate it and as well to negate it as best we can. That's where the leader comes in. So regardless about whether or not uh, an individual candidate holds views one way or the other, whatever their views are on any topic, including white supremacy, that uh, Charles brought up, it's what does the leader do about it? And that's the measure by which they will be judged. So it's going to be about what Andrea Horvath decides to do about it, one way or the other. She's going to make enemies and friends, no matter what her decision is. But it's going to give clarity to voters out there as to where, uh, how a leader handles these kinds of difficult situations. It's a difficult situation in the last two weeks of the campaign. It's gotcha politics, no question about it. And the last thing that I would say is it takes everybody off of a day of talking about policy issues, um, and I want to see more about policy. I don't think there's any undecideds out there, by the way. I, I think this this is now locked in in terms of how this is going to go, and the question is, can you get your people to the poll? Howard, should Andrea deal with this, or should she not deal with it? Uh, how do you respond to Lisa? Uh, because in the last 10 days of election campaigns, you'll see all kinds of this kind of gotcha stuff. Uh, I think this will be resolved at some point, but it probably won't be resolved during the election campaign, simply because it's very easy to throw around nebulous accusations, right? Very easy to do. Uh, But 
I don't think we want to get into a kangaroo court where someone is tried and convicted based upon a nebulous accusation. I think if you look at the person in question, all right, as as a member of the black community, as a member of another minority community, uh, I think they would probably be more sensitive to this to, than anyone. So, you know, this kind, you've got to put these accusations in context. This is an accusation uh, brought against someone who is a member of two minority communities. It's a nebulous accusation, and it's the last 10 days of an election campaign. And what is being put forward here um, is, is, I think, something everyone should take with a grain of salt. So you're saying Andrea Horvath should not address it? I'm saying that, uh, that you, again, you're, you're dealing with somebody who themselves is a member of two minority organizations. Well, exactly. So the next. You have to look at that. That's got to be part of the context. The second thing you have to look at is this is a very nebulous complaint. All right? To label somebody anti Semitic or to label somebody as anti this or anti that is very easy to do in our society. But what's the evidence? Is there some evidence? Uh, which brings me to another question, Charles. If the accusation, if the shoe was on the other foot and the accusation was of of anti-black racism, would the response be different? That's uh, good. It's a great question, and 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 I agree uh, with Lisa and Howard. This is about the leaders taking a position, and. Um, and whatever accusations are being made, the leader has to set the tone and make it clear that this is what the party stands for and this is who we are as people. And, I mean, you know, Stephen Del Duca had to manage a few of these incidences himself, and he had to re- actually expel the candidates. Um, uh, so Candidates who had no chance of, of winning. But be it as it may, it certainly told the world that we don't tolerate uh, these kind of uh, issues. Um, issues that create division and mistrust and and lack of understanding, and, and there is some of that that happens. Um, I think Andrea should just state her position and move on. Uh, Lisa, the biggest decision that you know maybe more important right now for people to make a decision on policy. Yeah. Lisa, there was there was a progressive conservative candidate uh, accused of homophobia mm-hmm. in the last week, and and Doug Ford uh, stood behind him and said, "I know his family. He's a he's a great guy." Now, is is the dividing line here the question of of winability? You know, as I said, it comes down to the personal choice of how the leader of the party wants to deal with it, and. And then how the voters are going to react to it. It's really hard, like Howard says, it's really hard for us to figure out from the outside what's really going on in these cases. And without all the context, without all the facts, all you really have is an accusation from an individual. And you have to give due process. you got to give fair process to it from that point. Now, if it turns out in either of these, any of these cases, any of these cases that have been brought up, NDP, liberal, conservative, if the leader got it wrong, and they are shown to have poor judgment, then that's going to really hurt them. It's going to reflect on the leader. And quite frankly, it should. You got to put a process in place. You got to make sure that you're fair about how you deal with it. And if you get the call wrong, you are held accountable for it. But that's what being a leader is. Um, The thing that Andrea Horvath is actually announcing today, she said that if elected, she would put a process in place for people who lost loved ones in the pandemic in nursing homes to sue. Of course, uh, the current government, uh, the PC government took away the right to sue. Uh, so, uh, Howard, uh, is, is that gaining any traction? I mean, I think that we're all surprised that what happened in long-term care over the pandemic isn't more of an issue? Well, I think for, I, I, I think for a number of people, it's still very much an issue, all right? Uh, you know, having uh, you know, heard myself from people who lost loved ones uh, in that situation and, and having you know, heard some of the details of it, for many people, this is still a big issue. 
but is it a big issue for the total population? I think what the focus ought to be here is uh, on is is this: what what is what is the rationale for removing the right to sue where you where someone has had a family member or a close friend die in a long term care facility? I mean, what what's what is the rationale for that very special treatment? The and rationale I, 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 I can I, I can tell you how, what the answer I got, and the answer I got was that these homes, which are still there and people are still living there, would not be able to get insurance. And, and that you know, was that they the, shouldn't be able to get insurance. I mean, let's let's just reflect on this. These there. The military had to be brought in because many of these homes, and many of them were private, profit-driven homes, were not prepared to provide the level of care that was necessary in the context of the COVID pandemic. And, and, And let's just review history. Many of these corporations, where so many people died, then boasted about, uh, you know, record profits. Yep. And in the last two weeks, we've seen the CEOs and the higher management of those corporations, where so many people died, awarded bonuses for their conduct during the COVID pandemic. I mean, how much more evidence do we need that, you know, some of these outfits really probably shouldn't be able to get insurance, given their conduct and given the very sad record of what happened? Lisa, I'm sure you have views on this. I do, Libby. And, you know, my views may not be ideological in nature, and they probably need longer than the 45 seconds I'm going to attempt to answer it in. But I would say this, that opening up an avenue for people to launch civil litigation is not the answer to the solution that they're seeking. If they want to know why it happened and how it happened and they want compensation, then you can do that without going through the court system. And what this will seek to do, quite frankly, and is to make lawyers rich. And I'm a, I'm a lawyer, um, but lawyers and law firms will get rich and we will be put into, um, a long, I guess, spin cycle of dealing with this in the court system. I don't think it's an advised position and I don't think it gives families in Ontario what they seek, which is if needed, a safe place for long-term care where their their families aren't going to be endangered. But if we treat everything like retribution um, and seeking a pound of flesh, we're not going to actually solve the issues that we want to solve. Charles? Uh, you know, they have to be held to account in one form or another. I am not a lawyer, but the notion of people being abused or being put in harm's way or worse, not being protected from harm as a result of the circumstances before them, that has to be addressed and has to be investigated and has to be corrected. As, as if my parents uh, were in a position and I wasn't able to have access to them and they passed away, I'd be infuriated, but I wouldn't be looking for compensation monetarily. I'd be looking for fairness and, and ensuring that those that were held accountable would be uh, held to account. And that's, yeah. and that's, I think, the more important point that I think Lisa's making as well. And I don't want that to be delayed. I want those investigations to, to occur and to ensure that uh, this doesn't happen again. Uh, I, don't I would know. prefer to see criminal investigations and yeah. civil litigation, to be honest. I mean, if this is to the extent that that is described, that there's criminal negligence, then let the appropriate people investigate. Because then it's about making sure it doesn't happen again, and it's about punishing people. I think NDP, if they're forcing the hand to ensure that this stuff, this is being reviewed, I don't know if that's the correct avenue, um, but it seems to me that they're making a point of it. Uh, and if they bring it to light, all the better. But if it's by way of making a lot of other people in the system rich for lack of, of, of providing the, 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 the corrections to the issue, that's inappropriate. Well, let me, let Howard, me yeah, go ahead. More, let me just jump in one more time. I think what this, I think there's, uh, at least at this point, evidence that this would lead to a class action suit. Yeah. And a class action suit uh, would put all of the facts uh, and uh, all of the issues before court. And I, I think 
uh, if you saw all of the issues and all the facts before a court, the public would be outraged at what went on here. And uh, would, would lawyers make some money? Yes, they would. There's no doubt about that. But I think the public outrage, if all of the facts were presented before a court, uh, would lead to substantial changes in long-term care. Just a minute, let's Howard. Let's, let's be clear. Uh, there's been a, an effort on the part of the private corporations that run many of these nursing homes or many of these similar facilities to try to move away and keep this as quiet as possible. What happened here was absolutely outrageous. And workers who worked in the homes came forward and said it was outrageous. And people who uh, had loved ones in those homes said it was outrageous. And here we are now, uh, a year and a half to two years after much of it happened, and not much has been done. Very little has been done, other than inviting in the military to provide some emergency services, which profit-driven corporations were not prepared to provide in the circumstances. Howard, let me let me just jump in. The public was outraged. The public seems to have gotten over it. And we've had so many inquiries. I mean, we know what happened there. And we know what the remedies would be. So, I mean, it's a matter of getting it done. Uh, and, and I'm sorry to use a PC done, slogan. One of the ways to get it done when you have a class action suit is a number of organizations being held responsible. Now, what we've, what we've had, I think, so far has been public relations campaigns. Let's have a little discussion about this, and then let's move on. And in the, in, in the course of a pandemic where you have so many things happening and so many people getting sick and crises in hospitals and crises in terms of healthcare workers, uh, it, it's very easy to then just say, oh, well, that was back then. We're now dealing with something else. But the fact of the matter is, there is a glaring problem here, and there was great injustice here. When corporate CEOs are getting bonuses, when the very corporation is boasting and bragging about how much money they made in the context of people who were left to die, something is very wrong here. Very, very wrong. And I think as a society, we increase the wrong if we simply say, oh, too bad, let's move on. Well, um, Lisa, I mean, it's it seems to me, I mean, we are saying that as a society to a certain extent, because this has not been a big election issue. I think that uh, to the I think it's a bit confusing for people because in terms of fixing health care and long term care, everybody has a, a plan that's hard for uh, somebody not engaged in policy to kind of pick through? If I were to put myself in the shoes of a voter, which I am, but I have a lot more lived experience than the average person does, I think what goes through their mind on long-term care right now is the notion that there's not enough places, and it makes them worried about their future for themselves, for their parents, for their grandparents, that there's not enough places. And where we have moved the discussion isn't about necessarily... Two things come out from the discussion of long-term care. Number one, we need to build more places, capital side. Number two, we need to pay our health care workers more. And that's really where the conversation has landed after all that we've gone through in the in the past three years. And those are the two pieces that Ontarians are responding to. And there's nothing else that I can really add to the debate. I have a whole lot of views on what should and shouldn't happen. Um, but it, uh, I think those are the two things that people are really resonating with right now. They want to make sure... Uh, personal care workers are fairly paid, and that uh, there's a space for them when they need it. Charles, just in a general way, do you see anything that can move things along in the election at this point? I mean, uh, the issue of long-term care doesn't seem to be doing it. Is there an issue, or is it is it uh, more people are looking at, quote, leadership? Yeah, I mean, on this issue is not resonating more than what has happened. They seem to be giving uh, the premier a pass, saying, "Yeah, you, you, we recognize a problem, and we're going to try to fix it." And they're giving him that opportunity. It seems 
Um, the, the receptions at the doors is all about, you know, who do you trust more? And we can get into a lot of policy and wedge issues that the, the opponents are trying to bring out. Doug Ford is just keeping quiet. He's just not going to fall for it. Yeah. He's not going to en- enable discussions around any contentious issues because he doesn't want to be caught in, in, in creating, uh, you know, any 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 desire to see something different. Like people are not as critical of him right now. Um, so, uh, I mean, the opposition will do what they have to do, and I think he'll just stay the course and and wait it out for another week and a half. Howard, uh, very unfortunate for Andrea Horvath contracting COVID and not being able to be out and about. She's campaigning virtually. I think she'll, she'll probably be out by tomorrow. But how big an impact is that having? I'm, I'm not sure anymore, but simply because... Uh, well, <laughs> So much of the world that we live in now is a virtual world. Um, so I, I, I think what is important is, are you saying something that uh, you know, people are interested in? Are you saying something? Are you tackling an issue that uh, the, the media has some interest in? Are you tackling an issue that perhaps has some uh, regional uh, interest? Those are the things I think that, that probably determine the degree to which you're going to be heard and you're going to be seen. Uh, and I, I, I fully admit I can't measure anymore, uh, you know, how much people are getting their news, their views uh, from the, uh, the their phone or their computer screen and how much they're getting uh, from uh, the media well, what, what we call the traditional media. And I, I, don't, I don't think anybody does have a clear picture of that anymore, uh, simply because uh, so many people now don't read a newspaper. So many people are suspicious of this channel from the media or that channel from the media, and so many people get their news from the Internet. So uh, I, I couldn't begin to measure that uh, it's it's un, it's unfortunate for Andrea as a person that that happened, but you know what's the impact in terms of the media? What's the in, what's the uh, impact in terms of the news that people hear, what they see, what they uh, talk about? I couldn't begin to tell you. Uh, I don't think anybody else can either. Lisa, we're going to give you the last word. Yeah. What are you looking for in the last nine days? Well, here's my bold prediction coming, Libby. But first of all, I want to say I hope both. Andrea and Mike are feeling well. I hope that they are coming through COVID. I went through COVID. It's not pleasant and be terrible to have it on the campaign. I can imagine their frustration. What do I see happening? I believe that policy in the next couple of days is going to be directed at shoring up the base of each party, trying to make sure that there's an incentive for them to get to the polls. And then I think it's going to go negative. I I think it's going to be an all-out attack on the leaders, all of them as varied pieces of information. It doesn't matter who... Um, but I think it's going to go into a negative campaign as people try to prevent uh, what they view as possibly a progressive conservative majority, or if you see jockeying between the NDP and the liberal. But not now. Next week, for sure, everyone's going to be talking about negative stuff. And that's that. That's the part of the campaign I don't like the most. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was getting pretty negative already. Uh, but in the meantime... Yeah. Thank you so much. We will be talking again next week when it's really going to be close, though voting is underway. Thank you so much, Howard Hampton, Lisa Raitt, and Charles Souza. Be well, everyone. Yep. Take care. Bye. Have a good day. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about monkeypox, everything you need to know when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just when we thought we were putting the pandemic behind us, the threat of another virus is emerging. I'm talking about monkeypox. By now, we have all seen the pictures of those horrible-looking lesions that it causes. On Saturday, Toronto Public Health announced the city's first suspected case, a man in his 40s who was recently in contact with someone who traveled to Montreal. The World Health Organization just made a statement saying outbreaks are containable 
I can't help remember how slow this body was in declaring COVID-19 to be a pandemic. So let us go to our experts to hear what we need. Let me give the numbers. Uh, I'm sure some people have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health, and Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Welcome, and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. So uh, let us begin with Dr. Furness. So this is a virus that's usually seen in Africa, but I think there have been 150 cases or so, 130 in places where it usually doesn't appear, correct? Yes, that's right. It looks like a couple of super spreader events in Europe, so just wrong place, wrong time, bad luck, um, that caused a lot of transmission. And then, of course, people go on their way and fly home, and that then sparks obviously um, multiple outbreaks in multiple countries. So it just really seems to have been a very unusual and unfortunate set of events. Okay. And Dr. Ja, how is it? Hello. Is, how is it spread? I've, I've seen all kinds of things. Uh, one of them says it's mostly sexual contact or it's skin. So how, how is it spread? It seems to be mostly through skin, skin contact, which uh, is, uh, and could be sexual contact as well. I mean, they obviously go uh, together in, uh, in intimate situations and you get skin contact. But the assuring thing is we know from previous evidence that it's not transmitted through the air uh, or very limited evidence that it is. And I know WHO has criticized early for saying, okay, well, SARS-CoV-2 was not transmitted airborne and then turning around and saying it was. But this is a very different virus. We're not a respiratory virus. It's uh, um, It can uh, mostly be contacted through uh, through skin so and the truth is that the world is looking for these kind of outbreaks in a way that it didn't before covid so in past times it might have not even been detected but as dr furness said it the origin seems to be a couple of super spreader events in europe and uh, but because you're basically looking at people with a rash, then it also should be reasonably easy for people to identify that they are potentially exposed and isolate and therefore decrease cases. So I think we'll get this quickly under control. Dr. Furness, it's related to smallpox, right? So we presumably have some vaccines that will work? In fact, the oldest vaccine we have uh, is from smallpox, and that was developed in the 1700s. So uh, we're not using the same thing today as, as from, from, from that long ago, but yes. And I, my understanding is that uh, the smallpox vaccine is about 85% effective against monkeypox, which is quite good. And people in their 50s and above, I think, have all been vaccinated for smallpox. So if you're older and you, you have that vaccination, um, you should consider yourself protected. My only concern is if this does continue the spread, and I doubt it will, but if it does and the virus starts to evolve, then, you know, we might be, we, we, we might sort of have a longer, a longer play with this, but, but I, I'm not expecting that to be the case. Now, I, th- I, I read that the U.S. is releasing some stockpiles they have of smallpox vaccine. Dr. Ja, do you know the situation here? Do we actually have it? Is it actually still good as opposed to being expired? I think the, the vaccines, the smallpox vaccines, have been kept um, protect, particularly for this kind of contingency. And here the approach wouldn't be mass vaccination. That actually would be very unwise. If anything, what what might be used is what was done for smallpox, what's called ring vaccination. So basically, if uh, there is an outbreak, you find the outbreak and all the contacts of that outbreak get the vaccine. And that basically shuts off onward transmission. Um, so, but we're still, I don't think we're even at that stage of thinking we need to resort. I think it's right now it's health doc, health uh, professionals need to keep an eye out for any kind of unusual rashes 
and get them reported, and if so, treat them like potential cases and isolate and report them, and then, you know, they get testing. And uh, hopefully with uh, the lessons from COVID, everyone will be more diligent about reporting the information quickly, and all the information will be gathered quickly. But I am quite quite sure that this won't be a major, uh, major event. Now, when we see the pictures, I mean, it looks really bad. So do all those lesions kind of recede after treatment? Uh, they recede pretty much on their own. It's just the body's reaction to the virus. And then afterwards, uh, it will heal. Um, you know, I mean, there might be some residual scarring, but uh, it, it generally tends to go away on its own. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Furness, are you sort of thinking this is something that we really don't have to worry about too much? I guess I would say I'm still far more concerned about COVID than I am about monkeypox because we have hundreds of Ontarians dying every month from COVID. We haven't seen, I don't think, a single fatality from monkeypox in this outbreak yet. So I think if we're looking at the size of the threat and risk, uh, I'm still very concerned about COVID. I don't think for most people monkeypox is going to be a concern. Okay, and you know what? I have started to see some literature that basically says that the threat of COVID is that in everybody's mind it is done with. Uh, I can tell you that in my own circle, I have uh, all kinds, well, not all kinds of people, but a number of people canceling things because they say, I just tested positive. That happened to two of the uh, four main political leaders campaigning in the provincial election. So we've got to take a break. And on the other side of it, let's talk about where COVID is at now. And people, if you have questions or a comment, 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been talking about monkeypox, and now we are going to chat about where we're at with COVID-19 and the various variants. Uh, Most people want to put this behind them, but a lot of people are getting infected still. I was just reading about to new subvariants. Let me give the numbers out again. If you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Dr. Furness, you were just saying you're more worried about COVID. Are people uh, being complacent? I think so. I mean, when we talk about the pandemic being over or COVID not being serious anymore, we really also then have to say, well, for whom? You know, no one under the age of five is vaccinated and they're at high risk. There's a lot of people who are immune compromised or or have a variety of health risks for whom this is not over. And, you know, they're, they're all at high risk. They're, they're being excluded to a large degree. And yes, among people who think they can weather a COVID infection, um, there's a lot of social interaction out there that, that is causing, uh, spread. And I'm concerned. I'm concerned because long COVID is for everybody, and I don't think we're paying enough attention to it. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Jai, just, you know, we've heard about Omicron, of course. We've heard about uh, BA2, but I was just reading about BA4 and BA5. Yes, I mean, those are potentially of concern, but uh, we know from uh, a study that we just released uh, last week that BA1, BA Point one and 1.1. They were very similar. Uh, infected 9 million Canadian adults uh, in December to, to March. And BA2, we're currently studying, and we should have some results by the end of June as to how many that's infected. But from all accounts, uh, we, uh, and if you look at the data and the wastewater, the, the size of BA2 seems to be, uh, reasonably uh, reasonably large so we should expect a fair number of infections from this current wave what is downstream we don't know yet the south african evidence on ba4 which is the one that many of us have been paying attention to suggests that might have peaked reasonably quickly so that's good news but 
we come back to the core message here that Dr. Furness has also mentioned that if the world is not vaccinated, we are going to, at high coverage, we're still going to have variants popping up in other parts of the world that'll show up here in the same way monkeypox spread from a couple of European super spreader events to here. So we really have to now take a global approach and say what's needed to get worldwide coverage that would really effectively curb transmission of this virus. And we're still not asking that question, surprisingly, two years after the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Furness, first of all, it seems that uh, are these subvariants milder than Omicron? Uh, probably not. Um, milder is an enormously tricky word. Uh, we have to think about the millions of people who've already died. They were perhaps among the most vulnerable. You only die once. So when you, when you, when you do that to a population, the you know, successive ways can look milder. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean they are. Long COVID, we are still just learning about. And to me, that's the boogeyman. That's the thing to worry about. And it doesn't seem like long COVID is diminished much. Uh, in these new variants. So it's, it's, we've got better treatments. We, we've got better ways of dealing with, with people. We've got less pressure on ICUs, and that makes people think it's less severe. And by that measure, I suppose it is. But we have to look at the overall burden of disease, not just ICUs and not just deaths, and say, well, if we're going to have a disabled population, people with long-term cardiovascular problems, uh, we may look back and say, gosh, we really shouldn't have talked about this being mild because... It isn't. So I, I think we, we, we need to be very, very careful, and we think we should be very cautious about how we regard COVID. I think it's a potent enemy, and I think we should continue to be concerned. I have a question about intervals. So a lot of people have become ill in this year, right, since Omicron, the highly contagious one. So we're told that uh, having an infection increases your antibody protection. So for people who, say, had three shots and then tested positive, so how long should they wait before? What's the optimal to wait before the fourth shot to maximize the protection from the fourth shot? Well, we really don't know. Uh, we've got some evidence from our national antibody study that precisely that combination of three, uh, three doses of a vaccine plus one infection gives you pretty high antibody responses. We know that they will wane over time, but uh, the, the responses will wane over time. But at least against protection from hospitalization or death, those three doses or even two doses seem to be really, really important. And this, I think, comes back to our core public health strategy should be to get still the large percentage of vulnerable Canadians, that's older Canadians and those that have some immune-compromised conditions, to have at least three doses on board. That will be the best thing that will keep our hospitals and ICUs uh, uh, free. We are going to have to have to deal with recurrent infection waves, but we can't let it overwhelm our healthcare system. So that comes back to the core strategy of making sure that three doses is the norm in Canada, not right now, it's just, it's a bare majority, but it needs to be the norm uh, for pretty much all Canadians or all adult Canadians. Okay, but but again, the question for people, this is, I get this question a lot, for people who uh, perhaps are older, have had three doses and an infection, how long should they wait before getting the fourth? Uh, I believe the guidelines uh, check is that after an infection, they should wait at least uh, probably about a month, but I'm not definite on those. Maybe Dr. Furness knows. Um, but I think the key thing is if they're in particular risk populations, then a fourth dose sooner would be sensible. So if they're immune compromised or if they face a fair number of, um, of um, elderly relatives, so they might transmit onto them, like if they're in any caregiving responsibilities, for example. So for those people, certainly I would suggest fourth doses, but I don't think we should muddy the message too much. The key gap remains the number of Canadians that are not yet have the third dose. That's what we really should be focusing on. Yeah, I mean, our frankly, our audience here, I think, 
I think they are mostly older and mostly have uh, the third dose. Dr. Furness, do you have a view on that interval question? I, I agree with, with Dr. Ja. There's a lot we still don't know. There's going to be individual circumstances and, and even immune response. I would actually, my, my preference would be if we could develop easy testing, uh, consumer testing, so that people could actually gauge their antibody levels. That would be a very nice thing because it really is guesswork. But we're, 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 we're still not entirely sure. We're, we're shooting at a moving target with, with the evolution of variants, with the waning uh, effectiveness of vaccines, and also let's remember what I'm what we're hoping um, is an Omicron specific booster shot that that could be available later this year that would be really important as well along with I think Pfizer has now demonstrated uh, effectiveness in, in kids under five this is really really important so I, I really agree with Dr. Jaw the fourth dose is not the most important question right now it's getting people to two or three and also reaching people globally as well as locally who haven't been vaccinated at all well uh, never never mind the fourth dose, Sweden uh, announced that it is getting ready to administer fifth doses in the fall. Is that jumping the gun? That's jumping the gun. I mean, I, even the Israeli experience of trying to say we're going to really get ahead of the fourth, uh, by doing fourth doses, well, Omicron ended up being um, effective even in vaccinated populations of causing infections. But the the key remains in terms of protection against hospitalization or death. Two or three doses seem to be the game changer, and that's really what we should be focusing on. Hmm. Okay, so uh, we're not going to worry about getting uh, getting supply for for our fifth doses. Um, the the other thing is the long. COVID that uh, Dr. Furness was raising, and apparently it doesn't matter if you had a severe infection or not. We just don't know, quite frankly. I think we need, long COVID is a real phenomenon, but we just don't know its parameters, how common it is, how much it's related to whether you first get infection and then vaccination or if you've been vaccinated and then get an infection. So those are studied, those are questions that are now being studied, including by us and Dr. Furness and others. So we should have some better guidance in the, um, in by hopefully the, the fall in terms of how common this is in Canada. But we, we really don't have a good sense of, uh, of those basic questions yet about this new condition. And uh, Dr. Furness, the symptoms of it are really wide-ranging. It's best to understand long COVID as a as a set of complications. Not, it's not it's not one thing. There's neurological long COVID. There's autoimmune long COVID. There's cardiovascular long COVID. Each of these can be extraordinarily serious. And and we're we're as, exactly as Dr. Jaw says. We're what we don't know. I think kind of defines where we're at with this. But we have seen enough evidence to know that you don't need to have a serious bout of respiratory COVID in order to have bad long COVID. That matters. Vaccination seems to help with some of it, but we're but with, with some of long COVID, particularly autoimmune long COVID. But again, what we don't know would fill books, and I, you know, I'm concerned, and I think people listening should be concerned. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you get COVID. You don't want to listen to the discourse that this is mild. Maybe maybe the respiratory phase is, and I hope it is for people who get sick. But what we don't know about the long term effects, I think, is chilling, is worrying and people should try and avoid this. And if they've had COVID, they should really try and avoid reinfection. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard of cases of reinfection. How common is that? I think it's going to become more and more common. Um, the record now, I think, is something like 20 days between cases. Uh, and it really depends on what your exposure has been and which variants and, uh, you're, you're exposed to. Uh, some, some protect better against others. It, that, that's a pretty, pretty complicated landscape. But I think it's, it's, you know, my disease model, 
my disease model for this is you're going to suffer permanent injury from COVID. You just are. The question is how much? Is it noticeable? And if you continue to get reinfected, that cumulative damage may become far more severe. And, and so I think that's, that's a, a, I think a useful lens or a useful way to look at this to say maybe you had it, maybe you didn't have a, a, a really severe case and you didn't have persistent symptoms. That's great. But don't assume that it's going to stay that way. And how long between an infection and uh, the onset of those long COVID symptoms? That could be as short as a, as a, as a month or so, you know, basically as you would think you would be recovering, but you, you don't recover. But again, we need to get much better population level evidence on how common long COVID it is, how it differs by, uh, by age group and by uh, gender and in different populations of, of Canada. I think those kind of data will come out in the next few months and will give us better guidance on um, how to tackle the, the longer-term sequelae of this, uh, uh, of this infection. And do the same rules apply in terms of keeping yourself safe, uh, um, trying to be outdoors as much as possible, which is uh, more and more feasible? Hopefully spring takes root. We seem to get a lot of uh, winter days in between. Um, uh, so is it just, you know, we know the drill by now, Dr. Furness? I think the same rule applies. You can you can stay quite safe comparatively if you don't share air without a mask. And that limits some activities, and other activities doesn't limit at all. And of course, being outside is is really ideal. Uh, but I think it's it's if you really understand the risks posed by COVID, you know that restaurant meal or that gym visit uh, or that house party indoors are absolutely not worth the risk. I think that's really what I want people to hear. We can do a lot of things that are like normal. Uh, there's just a few we really shouldn't. And and until we have a better sense of long COVID, exactly as Dr. Jha says, and better therapeutics. And better vaccinations, better vaccines. There's, there's, there's. This will come to an end eventually. It's just we're not there yet. Mm. And and do you have any predictions on how much longer? Well, I, I think, think we'll have to look at what happens in other parts of the world that have been ahead of us by a few weeks or months to think when do they get a next wave, if they get a next wave, and um, see in terms of the overall call it the immunity walls, the levels of infection plus vaccination that are in a population and see eventually does it lead to basically reduced transmission. The virus is going to be circulating probably forever um, because just the nature of the virus uh, and its mutations. It's just the question of whether it's going to cause serious illness and how big of uh, how many people get infected in each wave. So it does mean we have to uh, adapt, but the core of it remains high levels of two or three doses, ongoing vigilance and the ability to adapt. So being used to wearing masks, or at least wearing masks uh, indoors and in particular in winter seasons, that might be the new normal. But I think we can live with all of that and still carry on our our lives in meaningful ways. Uh, you know, the virus doesn't have to define our lives, but we have to be prudent and we have to be, uh, the, the sense that, oh, well, I'm so over this just doesn't help anyone. Um, and this is particularly true for the two million Canadian adults that still haven't got a vaccine. Uh, Dr. Ja, I am looking at the clock and it's ticking quickly. So we will leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Ja and Dr. Colin Furness. Thank you, Lily. Thanks. Okay. That is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.